I've talked to numerous range riders. We all go about our job different. Over the years, I've learned the habits of wolves. The wildlife is penned up in these little blocks of habitat between cities, between interstates. It's not like it was 200 years ago. It's a situation that's very tight. On the wolf issue, people have to understand that you can't be extreme in this. It, it, it ain't gonna work. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series Life in the Land in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. In this episode, we're still in the Big Hole Valley in southwest Montana, hearing from those involved in the Big Hole Watershed Committee. The committee was formed in 1995 and brings together fishing guides, scientists, government agencies, ranchers, and so much more to collaboratively steward the entirety of the Big Hole Watershed. Everything from stream restoration to collaborative drought management plans. In today's episode, we speak with Chet Robertson, who's a range rider in the Big Hole Valley. The ranchers on the committee expressed a need for a range rider to help prevent conflict between predators and livestock. So the committee began supporting Chet's work as a service to some of the area ranchers. When grazing areas and the leases are spread out over large expanses, a range rider typically rides amongst the cattle to keep an eye on the livestock, watch for medical issues, monitor when they need to move to new ground to prevent overgrazing, and to prevent conflict with predators. Whereas most range riders ride the cattle, Chet is unique in that he rides the predators, primarily wolves. As a tracker, Chet keeps a close connection with the area wolf packs to predict their movements and to discourage their presence around grazing areas. We spoke with Chet in the fall of 2021 amongst the sagebrush on the edge of the tree line. He shared with me about the tracker lens that he moves through the landscape with his perspective on the social divisiveness of wolves, and his experience owning a former Big Hole Valley mainstay, the Jackson Mercantile, and the larger connections to what small towns are up against. The people here mostly are old families that have been here a long time, generations deep in the valley. It tends to be that it's a big family, more or less, and like a family, people fight and get along and cooperate and. When all the cards are down, everybody jumps in to help. It's a wonderful place. The weather patterns tend to be pretty rough here. It's, it is a big hole, which essentially is an old word that the trappers used to describe a valley that had one outlet. If it weren't for that outlet, it'd be a lake. We get a lot of snow every year. In my time here, I've seen it be below 50, below zero numerous times. My job is to keep track of cattle, to keep track of predators, not just wolves, but bears and mountain lions. I do this by traveling around the valley a lot. I do about 100 square miles. My approach is unique, but I think that you have to be unique in, in this line of work. Wolves adapt to where they are. And I, I've talked to numerous range riders. We all go about our job different depending on where we are. and how the grazing allotments work. 
In my case, I cover a lot of ground, I look at a lot of cattle, and I harass the wolves. I experiment a lot, I, I do things to play with their minds. They're very neophobic animals, and anything out of ordinary, anything different, suspicious, it just bothers them, and I, I really play on that. Do things like stack rocks in the middle of a trail just to see what they do. Generally, they won't use that trail anymore for months. They will not use that trail again if you do something strange like that. And I should specify, anything I say is my wolves. I can't speak about other people and how their wolves act. My wolves, I try to keep moving all the time. I don't want them to get comfortable. I want them to be worried about me. I want them to know I'm here. I want them to know that I'm here because of them. I do a lot of odd stuff that people seem odd, but in, in the wolf world, it's not odd. If I find where a wolf has defecated and I can conjure something up, I'll drop it right on top of that. And I think it just plays with their mind. They, they don't understand why am I doing that. They've never seen anybody do that before. They want to know why am I doing this. I, I time my wolves as best as I can. I use game cameras and I try to figure out when they're going to be someplace. They generally hold a somewhat schedule. Um, and I try to be there when they're there. I try to move around through the wolves or woods, make noise. I just try to create disturbances. That, and it, I like to think it works. And can you tell me how, you know, it's not only to keep those predators a certain distance from the cattle or make them feel unwelcome in those certain areas, but also that you're so in tune with those packs that you can determine approximately when they'd be moving through a certain landowner's property so you can give them a heads up that there's also yes. that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I tend to call the ranchers and say, this is their schedule. They'll be there tomorrow. And that way the ranchers can expect it. They can go out and they can ride their cattle on those days. They can move their cattle. If the wolves are, tend to be staying in a particular area, they can move their cattle. I try to keep everybody informed about where they are. My, with my cameras, I can figure out how many wolves there are in the pack. I can figure out what their colors are. And this helps us keep track of those particular wolves. And I, I try to learn everything I can about my wolves. I, I want to know everything about them. So can you tell me, at least in this area, how many packs you know of and, that, and what other predators are you also tracking in that? I, I generally have three packs of wolves. We're in the center of one of them's territory right now. Uh, there's a pack south of us. These wolves I have a real hard time keeping track of because in my area is right on the fringes of their area. So they tend to just kind of drift through every once in a while. Sometimes I get pictures of them. Some years I don't get any pictures of them at all. Um, then they're on the east side of the valley here, there's a pack that kind of shares the Pioneer Mountains between the Big Hole and the, and the Grasshopper Valley. It tends to be a very large pack, but they're very remote. They tend to stay right up in the middle of the mountains in the summertime when I'm working. And uh, again, sometimes I find them, sometimes I'm not, I don't. There, there is one place that I can almost promise you I can take you there and find wolf tracks any time. Again, it's right, it's actually 
outside my boundaries, but it's close enough that I want to know what they're doing and how they're carrying on, so I keep track of them. And, you know, just for those who don't understand what ranchers are up against in working in an area that has predator activity, why would a rancher use your services? I alone am not going to change what happens with the wolves. Um, I'm solely a tool. And I guess basically what I do for the rancher is I'm another presence in the cattle. I'm, I'm not in their cattle every day. Um, may only look at three or four of their cows in a day. The cattle are kind of secondary to me. I'm very fortunate and my producers, they ride their cattle regular a lot. And so I don't have to worry so much about the cattle. Other riders have to worry a lot about the cattle. My concentration is on the wolves. I go in the woods and the wolves are my primary mission. The cattle are secondary to that and other predators I pick up along the way as I find them. What the rancher is up against is what anybody would be up against if somebody was coming by and jerking money out of your bank account all the time. That's what they're up against. And they want to do anything they can to lessen that. They, they tend to run very fine lines on their production, on making money on what they're doing. And anything that they can do to make that easier is a good thing for the rancher. They're cowboys, if they're out riding, they're looking for cattle. They're not looking for wolf tracks. Wolf tracks are something secondary. And I'm just the opposite. I'm looking for the wolves and cattle are secondary. And I guess that's what I do for the ranchers. I just offer a little bit of security. And tell me about uh, grizzly presence in the big hole. For years there were reports of grizzly bears in the big hole, but no real proof and nobody really necessarily believed that they were here. Five or six years ago I got a, pic I got a picture on a game camera and that was the first confirmation of a grizzly bear in the big hole. Since then there have been numerous sightings, pictures taken, confirmations and there is a map available and, and uh, if you look at that map inside the big hole proper there's probably a dozen and a half confirmed sightings of grizzly bears. In that time since I took that first picture it's been accepted that there is at least one resident bear here although my personal belief is there ain't no bear coming to the big hole for the scenery. He's got a gal somewhere and so I think that there are more than one bear, grizzly bears here. I asked Chet about his own connection to this landscape and the unique lens that he views it through. Most of Chet's days are spent alone out here, tracking the wolves, being tuned in to every detail of his surroundings. Many people move through a landscape to get to a destination or are simply tuned out from the intricate networks of life that exist all around them when there's no other humans present. Chet tells me about this unique lens that he views the land through. I watch the dirt. People often ask me, how many times have you seen wolves? I've seen wolves about a handful of times because I'm looking at dirt. I'm not looking at wolves. First of all, I should say wolves are predictable to some extent. They have certain places they use time after time, even pack to pack. You can remove an entire pack and the next pack that moves in will use the exact same places that the last one did for certain things. Over the years, I've learned the, the, the habits of, wood, of wolves, I'll say. And when they're going down a road, they'll cut the corners on the road, but they generally travel on the outer edge of the road, the downhill side of the road. And most animals do, but wolves are very 
meticulous about that. They almost always travel the outside or the downhill side of the road. Um, if they're working, they won't cut the corners. If they're just traveling, they'll cut the corners on that road. Three steps less makes up a lot over a day. I know where all the good dirt is. I'll go a mile out of my way to look at five feet of dirt just because that dirt's in the right place. It's good dirt. If there was a wolf came through, I'll see him there. I tend to deal with a lot of tracks, cattle tracks, elk tracks, deer tracks. My media is generally very stirred up with tracks, but I see toes. If I'm riding down a trail and, and there's all sorts of tracks the right size, four or five inches in diameter, standard cattle or elk tracks, and I'm going along looking through this stuff real quick as I'm traveling. I, I scan very fast with my eyes. I tend to travel about 10 miles an hour and not bragging, but I seldom miss anything. If I'm going through there and I see a four or five inch track and then somewhere in it I see a coyote track, I see the toes and I have to stop and go back and look at that because I'm seeing all these big tracks, but I saw a coyote, a canine track, in amongst all those tracks. And in my mind, that coyote track was big, like a wolf track, so I have to go back and stop and make sure. Um, also deer tracks, three deer tracks laid in the right order, in the right place, going the right direction, will make a very nice wolf track. And I've had some of them that I've had to look at for 10 minutes from every different angle to convince myself that that wasn't a wolf track. People tend to be not observant. They, they're not looking at the finite details of the world around them. I look at all the finite details. I tend not to be looking over there or over there. I'm looking here at all the details, all the stick that's out of place. Why, why is that tree laying in the road? Why is the rock flipped over? All of this stuff has excuses, usually bears. I think details, I'm detail oriented to the ground, to the flowers, to, to things in nature. I just very detailed at what I'm looking at. Do you think we could in general benefit from being a little bit more in tune with, with what's going on in the landscape? Oh, I think so. It, it, it's difficult by human nature to, to be that way. Especially in modern times, I think there's just, it's not necessary to be that way. And for a person to train their minds is, I think it's, it's next to impossible, I think. You have to be neurotic like I am. I've spent my whole life running around in the woods, looking at things, chasing animals since I was a little kid. I think that's what it takes. You have to, you know, you have to be like the old days when we didn't have phones and things to distract us. We, we had to rely on noticing what was going on around us. And that's just kind of the way I've spent my life. I asked Chet his perspective on the larger public social conversation of wolves on the landscape. As many folks know, especially if you reside in the West, it can be a very divisive issue. Historically, tens of thousands of wolves inhabited all areas of the continent and were a critical part of the ecosystem. As cattle ranching expanded across the West in the late 1800s and early 1900s, extermination efforts were carried forward to rid the landscape of wolves. By the 1940s, wolves were driven to near extinction in the United States. 
They were listed under the Endangered Species Act in the 70s, and reintroduction efforts took place in the Yellowstone region in the 90s. But the pressures on their habitats and the public villainization of wolves is still alive and well. As Chet is more tuned in with wolves on this landscape than most people are tuned into their own family members, I asked him his view on the contention around this concept. You know, hating a wolf for killing is kind of like hating a duck because it floats on water. It just don't make sense. It's what they were born to do. People tend to be very, they, they jump on a bandwagon and they tend to be very extreme. And people are very reluctant to meet halfway. You know, on the wolf issue, it's very obvious. There, there's people that want, that they're hollering, we need to kill all the wolves. It's ridiculous. We're not gonna kill all the wolves. It took poison to do that last time and nobody in their right mind is gonna say, let's poison all the wolves again. We, I hope we learn from the mistakes made during that operation. The wolves are gonna be here. We need to manage them. On the other side of the deal is that there's all sorts of people hollering, don't kill any wolves. Well, that's silly as well. And people think that they're, it's Disneyland out here or something. And it, it's not, I mean, you know, it, it's a balanced thing there. The, the ranchers feed people. It, your McDonald's hamburger doesn't grow on a tree. The ranchers feed people, they're a necessity. They're generally good people and they work hard at what they're doing. You have to accept that they, they have to take care of their business and same as it would be to you to have the cops hunting down your bank thief. On the other side, the world isn't what it was. The, the, the wildlife is pinned up in these little blocks of habitat between cities, between interstates. It's not like it was 200 years ago. It's a situation that's very tight and, and People have to understand that you can't be extreme in this. It, it, it ain't gonna work either way, being extreme. The, the people that want the wolves on the landscape, they have to accept that there's some wolves gonna die to be on the landscape. Some of them have to pay the price. And the ranchers have to accept that sometimes they're gonna pay the price for having them wolves there, whether they want them or not. They're, they're here and they're gonna have to accept that. They're gonna have to research and find ways to deal with them like in the big hole with the watershed committee and the ranchers here. They try everything and if it works, use it. And if it doesn't work, don't use it no more. Look for something else. Yeah, it's a simplification of a very complex concept. Exactly, people want to be simple about it. And yeah. I'm telling you now, when it comes to wildlife, there is nothing simple about wildlife, nothing. Right. You can think you know it all about them, but you don't know it all, ever. Right, even this concept of coexisting, it's. Sounds easy in one nice little word, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. complex to say the least. It's very complex. I asked Chet about something that's really married to the health of these landscapes, and that's the vitality of rural towns and communities. Chet and his wife own the Jackson Mercantile in Jackson, Montana, one of only a couple of towns in the Big Hole Valley. If anyone has been to Jackson, Montana, they know that it takes about 30 seconds, if you stick to the speed limit, to enter and exit the town on Highway 278. Jackson, an unincorporated community, has a current population of 36. The main feature in town is the Hot Springs Lodge, and across the street sits the Mercantile. Since the early days of Jackson, over 100 years ago, the Mercantile has been a key part of the community, and the Big Hole, 
being one of the only places in the valley to buy basic groceries and essentials. My own personal connection to the mercantile, I remember as a kid stopping in when my parents took us on day trips driving over the pass from where we lived in the Bitterroot Valley to go soak in the hot springs. My mom actually lived in the shed apartment behind the mercantile when she was a teenager, while she worked a summer job at the lodge across the street. Chet and his wife owned that mercantile for the past 20 years, and just recently had to put it up for sale. Chet tells me about his experience of owning the mercantile, and how this experience mirrors what so many other small town business operations have or are currently going through. My wife and I bought the mercantile about 21 years ago. Our wish was to get out of where we were. We didn't want our kids being raised in the environment that that place had become. And I relished the thought of raising my kids the way I grew up. So we abandoned our former life. I abandoned a very, very, very good job that I was, had been doing for 17 years. And we basically sold everything we had and bought the mercantile in Jackson. Jackson's at that time Jackson had a population of about 30 people and I hate to say it but I can conceive in my mind that in my lifetime small towns will be a thing of the past like Jackson I'm not talking little towns in the Bitterroot like Steve I and Corvallis and all of those I'm talking little towns out in the sticks like Jackson and Wisdom it's the world has become big there there's no little distributors anymore that distribute stuff to the little towns. It's all Cisco and it's associated foods. And, and our experience was that those, those services, they, they wouldn't come to Jackson to deliver stuff. We had to go to Dillon to get our milk. We had to go to Anaconda to do this and that and the other thing. Butte, we make, once a month we'd make a trip to Bozeman. Well, like us, it, the the expense of running that business, there was no way you could charge enough to cover the expense of running the business. The, there used to be 2,000 people in Jackson. And, you know, back in the early 1900s, there, Jackson was a thriving town. However, the years go by, technology gets here, now people don't need 15 people working on their ranch anymore. They can do it with them and their wife and two sons because technology. And I think that maybe a lot of people coming from the city, they, <laughs> one of the things was that everybody would always come in and they'd buy a can of pop and sit there and complain about how much you were charging for the can of pop they don't understand what it actually takes to get that can of pop on the shelf in the store in Jackson, Montana. It's hard to make a profit on it. People don't want to pay that much, so they fill up their cooler with everything they need when they leave home and drive through Jackson and they don't even stop. Some years back, three or four years ago, I went south to see some family and uh, coming back up through the Midwest states, the Plains states. When I was growing up in the Plains states, every five, 10 miles, there was a little town. There was a store and there was a gas station and might even be a movie theater in that little town. And coming back here when we did that trip five years ago, those little towns are gone. There, there's none of them there. And you can sit there and look 15 miles out across the prairie out there and on the highest spot out there, there's a Walmart sitting there. That's the death of the small town right there. Walmart, Home Depot, all these places like this. 
And even the people, you know, around these little towns, it, travel is too easy. To drive to Butte to get everything you need for the next month is nothing. It's nothing. And that's the death of the small towns. People complained and complained when we closed the store. If they'd have paid our $20,000 in debt, we'd have been happy to keep that store open because we loved living here. But we just, we couldn't do it. it. We were too far in debt and and it was getting harder and harder and harder. Every year it just got harder to make a living in that store. And we couldn't have made a living if I didn't work out. <laughs> the store just gave us a roof over our head. If we wanted anything, I had to work for that because the store just it didn't make enough to do anything past put a roof over our head. The Big Hole Valley, like many other locations in the West, is seeing a changeover in land use. With ranches' small profit margins and a decline in younger generations getting into the business, family ranches can be forced to sell. With high land costs, some of the only people that can then afford that land are absentee owners, people who live there for short terms, typically for the land's recreation value. This means that land is not getting full-time oversight and management. It also means there are less folks year-round in that community. And in rural communities, every person's presence is felt. Whether it's the mercantile, the gas station, the bus driver, or the necessary volunteer duties, the fire department, or various boards. Suddenly the school is at risk of closing because there's not the infrastructure there to attract the teacher needed at the one- or two-room schoolhouse. The interconnectedness of community members is tenfold in rural areas. Of course, every individual who is considered an absentee landowner interacts with the community in a different way. So this is not to say all one way or the other, but this is just to give some context on the realities of what local communities are witnessing. Another realistic option for ranch land to be converted into, in some areas, is subdivision, which means greater demand on water, the addition of pavement and roads, and increased elements that fragment the landscape which equates to pressure on wildlife populations and migratory corridors. I asked Chet his opinion on the significance of local ranchers being able to remain on this landscape, both for maintaining connected habitats and the impact on the community itself. Um, absentee owners, they tend to have a lot of money, have a lot of machinery, and they usually don't employ much more than one or two people to take care of that place. It's a place that used to take a family to run it, at the very minimum, a family. Um, so you, you have a population, like in the big hole, you have a population that's dropping, dropping, dropping. You have people that don't care about a land, the landscape or the community, I should say. They generally just do not care about Jackson Mercantile. They don't care that, you know, the neighbor's having trouble with their ditch. That's the neighbor's problem. To the old families, uh, if you're having trouble and you need some help, I'll give you an example. About 15 years ago, I broke my neck. The store was heated solely by wood. I had to get 14 cords of wood every year to heat that store through the winter. The year I broke my neck, I couldn't get the firewood. Long about sometime in September, I come out one morning, my wife was taking me to the doctor in Butte, and come out and there's two dump trucks sitting there full of firewood. They asked where I wanted it. I told them where to dump it. About two weeks later, they brought me another load. Absentee owners don't do that. The people absentee owners hire to work for them, they don't do that. They, 
it, it's, it's a loss of community. I think that's what it boils down to. It's just a loss of community um, with absentee owners. However, wh what do you do? You know, you have, a, you have a rancher that creeps by every year, goes to the bank every three years to borrow money to get through the next year. A guy comes to a rancher and this guy offers him more money than he will make, his children will make, his grandchildren and his grand great-grandchildren will make in their lifetimes on that piece of ground, and they offer him that money. That's hard to turn down. That's really hard. When you're getting up, going out in a blizzard to feed your cattle every day, it's hard to give that up. You, you can't blame them. And it's, again, it's the way things are going, and, and I don't, it's not going to change. All the ranchos will be owned by big money operations. It's sad. A lot of ranch kids move away and go get jobs sitting behind a desk or something like that because the, the ranch can't make enough to pay for three families to live there anymore. As Chet's services as a range rider are supported through the Big Hole Watershed Committee, though he's not directly involved in the bulk of the committee's other work in the valley, I asked him what he thought about the general approach that the committee uses to problem solving, of gathering input from a variety of entities and stakeholders to guide the decision making. I think it's wonderful that they have a mission to take care of this valley and to see this valley improve and, and they've got a lot of good minds doing that. Diversity of course in anything, diversity is a step up in anything. I think that if more of the country tried to practice what they're practicing, the, the big hole committee and the ranchers and the other people involved, if the rest of the country would, would try as hard as they do to cooperate and try to move forward with things, it'd be a lot better. It, it, it's a good program. Thank you so much to Chet for speaking with us. You can find out more about the work of the Big Hole Watershed Committee at bhwc.org or follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Also check out the other four episodes of the Stories for Action Life in the Land series, which also hear from voices in the Big Hole Valley, including a biologist in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, a fishing guide, ranchers, and the executive director of the committee itself. Check out the rest of the Life in the Land project at lifeintheland.org where you can find the film featuring these voices from the Big Hole Valley, as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Shoshone, Bannock, Lemai Shoshone, Kalispell, Absalaga, Nez Perce, Northern Cheyenne, Blackfeet, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible with support from the Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mine Lands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, 
Win at Aces, The Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Ranchers Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Fork Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and Chase Hibbert. Also, a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to support future Life in the Land work, you may do so at lifeintheland.org. We greatly appreciate the support. Thank you all so much for listening.